This is Your Bird Story, a podcast about everyday people's experiences and relationships with wild birds in cities. I'm your host, Georgia Silvera Siemens. Hello, everyone. I'm pleased to have Michelle on today. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on your bird story. Thank you, Georgia. Uh, Michelle, please go ahead and introduce yourself. My name is Michelle Sutton. I live in the Hudson Valley of New York, about an hour and a half north of New York City. I'm a horticulturalist and an urban forestry sort of subject matter specialist. I um, edit online urban forestry publications and I, I um, do the blog for the New York State Urban Forestry Council. I have a husband. I have an um, older mom that I take care of. I have two, a stepdaughter and two grandchildren. And um, I have a house rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> well, rabbits are great, actually. My mom used to have a rabbit. Oh, I'm obsessed. Yeah, they're adorable. Um, Michelle, so this is the first time you and I are seeing each other face to face. Though it's virtual, and you mentioned uh, that you are an urban forestry area specialist, so we have a deep interest in trees, and in particular trees growing in urban areas. And one of my pathways to birds was through trees, and I'm curious if you've had a similar experience. Well, I mean, I think it certainly contributed to this interest because I was in the habit of paying close attention to landscape. And I always knew I wanted to get into birds. And I think I was just waiting for the right time. And now having knowledge of trees is helpful because, um, you know, like if I learn that like oaks are really important to chickadees, then I know which are the oaks. And I, I think just a general uh, sort of, I've just been a lifelong nature appreciator. And honestly, where I, I still love trees and plants very dearly, but the excitement that I had in the early days of studying them and learning their names and Latin names and all that families, um, which I did find terribly exciting for a long time, um, it had worn off a little bit. So starting to learn birds and applying those same kinds of ID skills, but to an animal has been it's, it reminds me of that feeling I had when I was first learning all about plants, you know, that excitement. Yeah. Um, are there any tricks that you remember when you were studying trees that you found um, applicable to learning about birds? Oh, boy. Good question. I think it's pretty different. It's a, it's a similar uh, hunger for a certain kind of knowledge. I love to classify, I love to know the names of things, I love to know the Latin and where it comes from. But as far as in terms of the observation, I mean, definitely there's, I'm in the habit of looking at things seasonally, so that probably helps. But with birds, it's so much more about movement and sound. Mm. So it's been exciting in some different ways too. Yeah. Mostly paying attention. 
not paying attention. Yeah, it's um, it's a challenge because they move and move so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially those little jewels, the warblers. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to miss my opportunity to say how much you influenced me getting into birding. And I, I know I've told you this before, but um, truly this spring when I was feeling so heart sick and soul sick about the state of things, worried about my older relations, worried about everyone. I came upon your uh, Instagram and you had bought a book about warblers and you were excited to learn warblers. And then also your post about patch birding. That was my first introduction to that concept. And um, I since my husband and I have since found a patch that I would love to tell you about. There's a couple really neat things that have happened in relation to our patch. But thank you so much because it, you, you, you were a key influence at a key time, and it's brought me into um, one of the most uh, gratifying pursuits of my life. Hmm. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that's an additional way that we're connected. Um, and I think for many people, and certainly at least folks that I've spoken with for this podcast, there was something about this spring or several things about this spring that brought um, birds into people's lives in a different way than prior to the pandemic. I would love to hear about your patch. That's actually one of my questions. I'm such a fan of patch birding since I was introduced to the concept. So yeah, please tell us. Oh my gosh, it's been so exciting. Um, we live on um, a relatively new rail trail, but interestingly, we're also on a very busy, loud road. Um, so my husband had been utilizing the rail trail and exploring some local um, nearby nature, but I was always put off by how loud it is to get to the nature, you know, <laughs> through yeah. along this road. And it's so loud that it, you don't hear a lot of bird song here, except for last spring we did. That was wonderful. But um, he had been telling me about this spot, just the equivalent of maybe a, a, a city block and a half down the trail. Yeah in the swampy area behind our neighborhood. It's a swamp that abuts hills and, and forest. In my mind, I had sort of written that area off because it was leased by um, a gun and hunting club for years. Mm -hmm. And I associated that land with hearing gunshots during hunting season. And between that and um, all the poison ivy that I knew to be there, I'm very allergic to poison ivy, which really stinks when you're a gardener in the Hudson yeah. Valley, you know, that and the ticks are the big bummers. But we heard through um, my stepdaughter's, a friend of my stepdaughter, that the gun club was no longer, you know, as of relatively recently, I guess last fall maybe, had stopped leasing the land. And then we saw a for sale sign go up. And so... On the one hand, I knew that I wouldn't have to encounter hunters or, you know, um, I was willing to check it out. But on the other hand, I was nervous about, well, who's going to buy the land and what's going to happen to it? Mm. So, and I will get into particulars of the patch, but I have a very happy development, which is that Scenic Hudson, which is sort of like the natural areas conservancy of our region, mm -hmm. bought this whole huge tract of land behind us. And that I can Excellent. walk to, that I can walk to in four minutes, 
And it, it is, I'm so excited and I'm so relieved because it is a real um, migrant. I don't know if trap is the right word, but it's a, it's a hotspot for migrants to be sure. Um, it's the first place that um, we saw all manner of warblers in the spring and fall, including in the springtime, we had this magical experience where an American red start was just absolutely showing off for us. It just was, it was just weaving, we were staying on the bridge over the swamp and it was just weaving back and forth across the water and just like, it, it felt, he got, he just, he got so close to us and it was our first time seeing one. It was just, an, it was an incredible show. You know, um, we also saw um, chestnut-sided warblers, Wilson's warbler, blue vireos. It was the first place I saw rose-breasted grosbeak. Oh. Um, it was my first really good look at a red-tailed hawk. It's the first time I noticed and could identify a pileated woodpecker drumming. Oh. Um, it just was um, so much fun. Every, especially during the migratory periods, every morning was just like. You couldn't, you, everywhere you turn, there was something cool to see and you couldn't keep up, you know. And so, and there is a lot of poison ivy down there. So that's one thing I've had to just dress appropriately and um, be, I just am very aware of it. The one time during the season where we, we didn't go down to the patch so much was um, when the leaves were turning and falling off because we would go down there and on a windy day, these poison ivy leaves were just <laughs> flying at me and I just said Dale I can't I can't tolerate this you know it's just I realize maybe they're not as oily as they are when they're on the tree but I still don't trust them <laughs> that sounds like a very intense experience <laughs> I mean the worst case of poison ivy I've had in the last 10 years of actually the only one was I was snuggling with a friend of mine's dog oh. and it had somehow gotten like in January in January and so that's how I'm sensitive. I have to be careful. Yeah. But um, we also saw a bear in the patch. This is a very special spot. Oh, my gosh. It, truly. So it's, um, as I say, it's like swamp and marsh and woodland, but there's also scrub. And around the bridge um, is a, a lot of scrub that the, the migrant birds were just so plentiful in. I saw a Lincoln Sparrow there um, this fall. It's just um, so amazing. So many firsts. But yeah, so um, I, one day I was looking out over the, the grassy part of the of the land and um, I saw I was like, that what's that black spot? It looks like a really big bird. You know, what on earth is that? And then all of a sudden this fuzzy head and ears pokes up. <laughs> it's a Dale's a bear. It's a bear, and it was at a good distance away. It wasn't like we were worried about upsetting it or it us, but it was so exciting, and it it clocked me at the same time, and then it ran behind some shrubs, and my husband really wanted to get a good look at it, and um, so I said, "Well, let's just sidle over a little bit and wait," and sure enough, he came back out, stood on his hind legs, and looked around, and we got just a killer look at him you know just a great and he was so so cool so beautiful and and now we're like oh we wish we wish he had a radio frequency device on him so we could know like what he was up to or she and where they eat and where they're gonna hibernate and I'm just like so curious about this creature you know yeah you have a uh, multi-species patch <laughs> that's really wonderful I am 
it's very exciting to me that there are so many habitats within that patch. So the potential to see a really broad range of species is, I mean, you can see a broad range of species because of that habitat diversity. I'm curious about a couple things that you mentioned. So do you have a name for the patch? Do you call it something? We've just been calling it the patch. You want to go down to the patch? But now that it's securely in scenic Hudson's hands, I feel like I'd probably give it a name and allow myself to get fully attached. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. I'm also really surprised you sort of listed um, some really great birds there. Can you talk about your process um, for IDing birds? Um, You mentioned that many of the birds you saw were firsts. And if you started sort of your birded, birding journey this year, um, yeah, how, um, how do you ID birds? Do you make notes and then go home and consult a book? Can you tell us about your process? Well, it was very labor intensive in the springtime. Lots of hours of, well, I, I should say too, I immediately got on all the Cornell resources, Merlin, um, eBird, um, every every. I was just sponging it all up, you know, and Ebert, or excuse me, Merlin was my main means of ID. Um, but in the very beginning, um, before I got hip to all of those resources, I would just observe the bird as closely as I could take mental notes and then run home and then just try to figure out what I'd seen. And I wasn't always successful. Um, but I, I'm also taking courses through the um, Cornell Labs Bird Academy, which I highly recommend. They're just wonderful. Those have really helped speed my ID skills along. Um, but there were, it was, it could be frustrating. And still too, um, it can be frustrating if I see something and just really don't get enough field markings and I have to just let it go and, and wait to see them again sometime, you know. Um, but I, I think also, I think I have a pretty good sort of brain for ID, for observation, and but it's also just these fantastic courses helping me along. Yeah, it certainly helps if you've got keen observation skills. <laughs> um, do you use, are you a binocular wearer or do you use the camera? Oh, um, well, when we first started, we rustled up my husband's parents' old binoculars, and they actually, um, a couple of them are pretty good, but they're very heavy, and they're, they don't, one of them is very heavy and doesn't have a proper barrel, so every time you wanted to go forward and back, it was such a complicated, you know, and then by the time you adjusted forward or back, the bird was gone. So I I pretty early on realized that I needed um, a contemporary (laughs) pair of binoculars and I got a pair of, um, they're eight by 42s diamond back vortex. And um, they're a couple hundred dollars and that was, they're meant to be a lifelong pair. You know, they're, um, they warranty them. I'm sorry, I don't mean to do an advertisement within the (laughs) podcast. It's just incidental. It just happens to be what I ended up with, but um I really envy people who have the ability to like scope and photograph, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if that's for me because I think that that could trigger in me sort of like this, um, 
becoming a little more competitive or a little more acquisitive. I don't want to bring a consumerist feeling to my birding. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, I try very hard not to preoccupy myself with my life list. I mean, I keep it for my own interest and memories and, but I'm not like, um, I'm not a twitcher. I'm not a, you know, obsessed with the number of birds that I see or anything like that. And, but, but there is that, there is that possibility in me to be like that. And I also feel like I'm seeing the birds for myself. Of course, I want to report it to eBird and contribute to the citizen science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I don't know, maybe someday, but I certainly do envy people who have those kind of skills. And my favorite bird photographer is Jesse R. Gordon. Do you follow his Instagram? I don't. I think it's jesse.r.gordon. Um, he's phenomenal. And I he he brings this very non non-consumeristic um, sort of reverence to his work. And it's not about accumulation of pictures or accumulation of a list or and I really recommend folks listen to um, Foul Mouths podcast. Mm. And Jesse Gordon was their first um, interviewee. And that conversation is really wonderful. Um, and and his, I complimented on him on the pictures are beautiful, but there also is a way that his reverence comes through in the picture somehow. It's really, and then that stirs up those feelings in me. And mm-hmm. um, I can't improve on what someone like Jesse Gordon is doing. <laughs> Um, well, I'll certainly check out the Instagram and you raised two, um, important points in those observations. I think there's one about this use the word reverence, something that's come up a few times in some of the conversations we've had on the podcast is this spiritual connection between people and birds. And it's things that are almost passed down along generational lines in some cases, And then the other piece, um, and this is a conversation that's happening right now in the birding world, is this idea of a, you use the term consumer experience, consumerist, acquisitive, and the balance that um, people think need to be struck between seeing a bird, that desire to see a bird that might be unusual to see in a particular location, or time of year and respecting the kind of life force of the bird to be where it is. You know, in New York City currently, there is a sort of a lot of drama about some owls in Central Park mm. and the concern that some folks who are there to see the birds are behaving in an unethical way. So there is this um, push and pull in bird watching between being there to see the bird because they're such majestic beings and we're sort of all part of this ecosystem, but respecting them as their own beings and they have a right to exist peacefully aside from our prying eyes. So it is something that's very, it seems like a perennial discussion in the bird watching world. So I'm glad you pointed it out. Jesse Gordon discusses that at length in his interview. 
about what his ethics are and how they contrast to some of his peers. And that influenced my point of view too, that I, I don't really want to use baiting techniques of any kind. I really want to be more of a passive observer. Um, but there's been plenty to see without having to do baiting, you know? Yeah. Do you, as sort of keeping on this um, line of conversation, do you think you will develop a purposeful set of ethics or do you think your ethical stance will sort of emerge and evolve as you move through this new pastime? Well, I mean, I tend to be um, sort of a hyper ethically focused person. If my dad was like that, if he wasn't charged for a soda at a meal out, he would make sure to point that out to the server he was ethical to that degree, like every, you know, thing. And I think I, I get some of that from my dad. And I just don't want to harm birds in any way. I wouldn't feel good. I'll look for guides, you know, I'll look to people that have, have more experience than I do. So, for instance, um, just down the road from us, there's a purple martin colony. Mm-hmm. And I got in touch with the um, man who kind of helps tend the, you know, the bird quarters you know, just felt him out about how is, should I stand this far back? Should I, what, what is respectful? And he's like, oh no, we just put chairs right up here on the hill and watch them. And they're used to us because they've been coming here year after year. And so, you know, if there's like a very cool owl that people are seeing, I'm just going to feel out, you know, and make sure that it's not one that's um, sensitive. I think I'll have intuitively probably good ethics going forward. And just in general, I'm always looking for ways to be less um, acquisitive relative to my surroundings. I'm also curious um, that you and your husband, you bird together. um, And could you describe that dynamic? Are you similar birders? How are you different? Well, it's been a very good thing for our marriage, to be sure. We've been married for 10 years and we need things to bond over and talk about. And sadly, um, we don't see the grandkids as much as we used to, right, for obvious reasons. Um, We saw them outside some this summer, but it definitely is not the same. Mm -hmm. So I used to feel most bonded with him when we were hanging out with the grandkids. And I would say now that's still true, but more so even when we're out birding together. We have had house rabbits We've had one and then a pair, and now we're down to one who's 10 years old. And so she's a little old lady bunny. She's still so cute and vibrant. But we would joke about, you know, well, what are we going to talk about when Danny goes? You know, like, we're going to need something to talk about. So truly, like, the birding has been very helpful for our marriage. And it makes me feel like, okay, when my bunny goes, like, he and I will still have this part of the animal world that we're caring about and nurturing and um, he's a bit older than I am and <laughs> recently he said to me that he was going to really specialize in raptors and owls because he can see and hear them <laughs> <laughs> I'm with him <laughs> and, and and 
just like when we go to the patch or wherever and I'm hearing just like all this twittering, I have to just look at him and say, you'll have to trust me that this is what I can, this is what's here, you know, like he, cause he, the high pitched, you know, I would say two thirds of the time he can't hear the bird song I can hear. So, and then his eyesight is, mm, so <laughs> He's a good sport about it, though, and he just really loves to be outside, and he loves to hike, and we compliment each other. Yeah, yeah, he's got the birds of prey, and you've got <laughs> you've got the prey, you've got the songbirds. So um, among that list that you've generated, is there a bird that's very special to you? Is there a bird that sort of caught your eye right away? Well, I mean, so many for so many different reasons. And um, I just so enamored of so many, I'm enamored of all the birds really, but in the springtime, how this all started was that um, I had a bag of uh, millet that was meant for cooking, but I just wasn't getting around to using it for anything. And I thought, and I read up and said, oh, ground feeding birds like millet. So I put that out in the backyard and I'll never forget early one morning, uh, squirrels were hanging out and all sorts of ground feeders, morning doves and chipmunks and and a white-throated sparrow, as I came to find out, comes just tearing at a hop, but just shooting out from under a juniper tree and he just, and, and just hops into the fray like he was saying, get out of my way, everybody, I'm here now. It <laughs> <laughs> was just such a little badass, you know. And so that was the first thing I observed was the behavior, which cracked me up. And then I started looking at the field marks and the beautiful white throat and the yellow lures and the striped uh, head and um, kind of chubby body. And, and I was just struck by its beauty. And then I heard it. It's like I took a while for me to put together that what I was seeing and then this is what I was hearing were the same. And because we had abnormally low traffic, their song was just so clear and beautiful. It's one of the most impacting experience of sound I've had in my life. And it was just at a moment where I needed that beauty, you know, so desperately. So I, I made a wall calendar and I made a, put a picture of white-throated sparrow as the bird for the year. That's how much I love those guys, you wow. know, they're so sassy and and what's cracking me up right now is how you'll still hear the Sam Peabody, but like at half volume, they're just kind of like, it's kind of like, I guess maybe just to give shout outs to their friends and mates, like I'm over here, I'm over here, whatever. But it's just like a, and whereas in the springtime, it's just so loud, you know, yeah. but that, that just, I find that so dear. Oh, and also the way they double scratch. Yes. Oh which if any listeners don't know about that, it's um, the two feet, uh, they hop, they slide back and forth with both their feet at the same time. And it reminds me of like a little kid sort of dancing, you know, like um, just no cares in the world. And um, it's just the cutest thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. They really almost have like a running man thing going on. <laughs> That's a good description. I like that. <laughs> um, I wanted to close with, just some more conversation about the patch itself. I'm curious how you're thinking that new ownership might affect the patch and 
the birds that use that space? I think it's the best possible scenario for that land and for the birds, you know, because it it really could have been developed in some, you know, there are parts of it that could have been developed that would have been a disaster. I'd like more people to know about it as a birding. Maybe I'm being naive, but I I think the birders in my area are are conscientious and I guess I would like it to be birded more because it is so um, biodiverse, you know, that, I mean, just us novices, how many we saw imagine the seasoned birder coming and what they might find. And there are other scenic Hudson parks that are very popular, but, you know, generally, even, even when there's people there, you can still see a lot of neat birds. And I think the birds get used to the, the parking lots tend to be small, limited uh, parking. And so I, I'm curious about what's going to happen. And I also, I guess I would really love to have like people come with me, you know, or, or, or me go with someone who's more seasoned that I could learn from. And I even suggested to eBird that they consider it as a hotspot and they haven't, they haven't taken me up on it yet. I'm sure with a good reason, maybe they want scenic Hudson to make that call, you know, mm-hmm. One thing I'm sort of hoping for, it's a mixed bag though. I would love for them to clear out some of the more, the poison ivy that's like really in the, grows into the pathway. Um, On the other hand, I've seen how much shelter and food the birds have gotten out of the poison ivy. Yeah. So I'm appreciating, like that red start was totally drawn to that spot because of the, 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 it seemed to me it was a, utilizing this place that was just all poison ivy you know so I wouldn't mind if there was a little (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah or maybe a less um a less uh harmful vine yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah because you know I would love to be like a volunteer you know helping keep the trails and stuff but I can't currently risk it in that the way the current situation (laughs) well it's definitely serving a purpose as you you know um keeping it's a an attractive spot for birds and it certainly is keeping folks away because of the potential for harm so (laughs) you know one thing I've really noticed about you in this conversation is you're quite a um you know you talked about being a keen observer and how that's really helped you and watching birds and it's come out more and more in this conversation you really tune into bird behavior and um, I think that feeds into the sort of ethics that you spoke to earlier it's about seeing the bird and how they use a space what their life history is and um you can only know all of that because you're observing deeply and carefully. You're not simply just looking at the bird to check off a list and move on to the next. So there's so many wonderful parts to this conversation, but I feel like that's really up there, um, certainly in what I've learned about you today. And finally, Michelle, could you sort of share a couple of things for folks who are just entering the world of bird watching. Looking back on this year, are there things you wish you had known at the start? Well, I think um, 
I, I think I just jumped right in. I found the resources early on. So I would just really recommend all the Cornell resources, including if you watch their live feeder cam from Ithaca, you'll see a lot of birds. It, of course, depends on where the listener lives, but I did a lot of practicing ID by watching the feeder cam. Mm-hmm. And and then now I'm doing feeder watch. That's another thing I recommend for people new to birding. It will really accelerate their knowledge about their backyard birds. That's another Cornell program that's also citizen science driven. And what else? What did I wish I had known then? You see, it's an interesting way that I, I was really doing a lot of this alone because my husband's maybe not quite as observant, but also groups weren't meeting. Right. You know? So I'm in the habit of kind of going places and figuring things out myself. And then with the help of these online resources, certainly um, just any perfectionistic tendencies you have, because I, not you, Georgia, but the listener, I <laughs> certainly like I'm recovered. I'd like to think a recovered perfectionist. It used to stop me from trying new things. Mm. You know, I decided with the birder, with the birding that I just had to come to it with humility because it is such a vast um, amount of potential studying and that I'm not going to do it perfectly. Oh, I know. Take the eBird Essentials course before you start eBirding. That that was a mistake for sure. I just wanted to jump in there. I was so excited to start counting. Uh-huh. And then, you know, I took the course a few weeks later. I think I might have gotten like a gentle suggestion from a reviewer or something. <laughs> <laughs> and eBirding is free and the Essential course is free. So uh, how many birds do you have on your list? 104. And those are primarily in your patch? Well, no, I mean, we saw a lot of firsts in the patch. Probably a quarter of those are from the patch, but we have been um, just, it's really been our number one hobby and leisure time activity for this whole growing season. And we we went to um, very specialized habitats like the Shawangunk grasslands. So we saw a number of birds there that you know, like at the Northern Harrier raptor that we wouldn't have seen anywhere else probably. Yeah. And then this summer, almost every night we put our chairs out in the driveway. And despite this noisy ass road out here, because we have a lot of nature around us as well, including a nearby pond and then the, the land behind us, yeah. we, we had incredible sightings. We had a green heron living, um, I think over probably over the pond somewhere that we saw regularly. Oh. Yeah, I know. I know. And if you were to see where I live, you'd think, oh my God, you know, this noisy road and how, but one night we had um, a flock of common nighthawks come really? and, just, and just circle. They're eating. It was at sunset and they were eating insects and they, and they were just all circling above us. And it was just, we were just. <gasps> <sighs> I've only seen one and it was this summer. I was doing a, um, a swift count with a friend and uh, there was the Nighthawk. That was the first one. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being in the right place at the right time with the right surroundings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, Michelle, thank you so much for sharing the many tales within your larger bird story. Oh, thank you, Georgia. I've really enjoyed the chance to talk to you. I'm a big fan of all your 
um, your social media, your research, your your creativity. And so it's such a pleasure to get to see you. Yeah, thanks. I And hopefully, um, once it's safe to gather, I would love to visit your patch. It sounds absolutely spectacular. Yes. And we'll go to the grasslands. Okay. Grasslands is just 900 acres. Okay. It's a date. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You take care. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. For this week's Nature Note, I'll be reading excerpts from my 2019 article for Audubon.org. Want a training ground for your birding skills? Try patch birding. The first time I heard the term patch birding, I was chatting with author and bird guide Heather Wolf in a coffee shop overlooking Washington Square Park in New York City. She used the term to describe birding regularly in a place close to home whether it be in Manhattan or her previous stomping grounds on the Florida Gulf Coast. A novice urban birder myself, I was intrigued by what the method entailed. I spoke with three experienced birders to gather information from my article, and our conversations convinced me to seek out my own patch and learn everything I could about my feathered neighbors. To do so, I broke the process down into a few steps. Find your patch learn the birds and their habits, and tend to your patch. Keep a list or don't keep a list. One of the experienced birders I spoke with for my article was of my friend Matthew Clark. Matt says, my advice would be not to force it. Let your connection to your patch develop organically as a special place you like to spend time. To read the entire article, want a training ground for your birding skills? Try patch birding? Do a web search with Georgia Silvera Seamans, Audubon, patch birding. If you'd like to share your patch birding story with us, email hello at wspecoprojects.org. Hello at wspecoprojects.org. Thanks.